0: Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org.
1: Hey, listeners, welcome to this fall 2021 edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words, part of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this, our 250th episode, yeah, it's hard to believe we did it in several years, but here we are, 250 episodes, we visit with award-winning author Craig Nova, where we feature his book Double Solitaire, the first in a new series of L.A.-based thrillers featuring modern-day fixer Quinn Farrell. As a fixer, Quinn is hired by Hollywood moguls, celebrities, and other L.A. professionals to clean up their messes, a job that requires moral ambiguity. After falling in love with his lovely new neighbor and her terminally ill patients, his morals were tested, and his ethical house of cards comes crashing down. Anne Beatty, author of A Wonderful Strike of Luck and the Accomplished Guest, had this to say about the book. Reading a new Craig Nova novel is thrilling. He's one of our very best writers, creating characters who walk on knife blades sharpened with bleak humor as they simultaneously act out their dangerously excessive plans. Figurative language in double solitaire sometimes immerses us more deeply, sometimes lifts us out of a creepy, convincing nightmare. It's up to us where we land. And Craig's not looking at America head on, it's in his peripheral vision. He's amazing. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for being here. We are grateful for your presence and uh, really appreciate your time. Join us here on the podcast. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories. And if you run out of things to do one day, you can check me out at uh, landiswade.com. Find out more about uh, me and uh, my writing. For everything related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. We've got show notes on each episode uh, with images and links. We've also got a community blog there. Uh, If you're a writer, you can submit there. We've got a lot of great content And speaking of great content, uh, we put out a book report every two weeks. It's free to sign up for, and uh, there's some free stuff you get when you sign up. You can check that out at the uh, podcast website. Uh, Hey, we won't spam you because, frankly, that takes way too much time. Speaking of free stuff, if you like audiobooks, and you go to Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O.fm, and uh, sign up with uh, their audiobook service. Uh, Use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER. And get a free audiobook. Last thing I want to tell you right quick before we jump into the episode is that we have what's called a Patreon channel, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. It's a place where our authors uh, and I do a deeper dive into the craft of writing and the business of writing, and uh, you can join us there and and support the podcast when you do for uh, as little as $5 a month or $8 if you tip. Uh, we put out a lot of content on that page, and uh, we've had a lot of fun doing it. I, I've certainly learned a lot about the craft and business of writing on our Patreon page, so join us uh, at Patreon or through our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough of this prologue. Let's get to today's episode. Craig, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, great to be here and
0: great to talk with you.
1: You've been a writer for quite a while, Craig, uh, 14 novels and one memoir. What does it feel like for you when another book comes out? Is it any different than in the earlier years?
0: Oh, yes. It's much different after, say, um, oh, I don't know, eight or nine. Um, you know, you get used to it. There is nothing um by the way, about like the first one. The first one is is really something else, although I think that the um, the error that most uh, writers make is that when they publish their first book, they think it's going to change their life, and it doesn't. Um, and I think that um, um, separates those who are really serious about it from those who aren't, because picking up the pieces after a book that you thought was going to change your life didn't is um, the stuff where a tire hits the road as far as being a writer is concerned.
1: Yeah, and and that's great, Craig. Uh, and actually, uh, we're recording this in early September, even though this releases on October fifth uh, for our two hundred fiftieth episode. And the and the uh, New York Times just came out today with a nice review. They they say that uh, Double Solitaire uh, seems to be bathed in cynicism, and uh, they talk a little bit about the plot, but then uh, uh, they finish up by saying the journey can't quite move past typical no- North thematics as Farrell must attempt to be moral in an amoral sphere. But that's no knock. And Nova has fashioned a serious character, well worth revisiting. So you're looking forward, uh, Craig, to coming back to this character again.
0: I think so. Um, in fact, many um, um, writers I'm I'm uh, fond of um, and, and appreciate uh, their work are, are doing this as well. Um, you know, I think that the the reason that I've, I'm I'm doing this is that um, genre fiction, which I really don't want to say, but um, Books that are, are, are written um, to entertain and to uh, please, like Graham Greene's Brighton Rock, um, are those where uh, storytelling is prominent. Um, novels in the modern age are having a little um, crisis or big crisis um, about what they really are, political statements um, and the like, um, but um, a book that is written to entertain um has to do with storytelling, strong plot, strong characters, and that's what I've always been interested in.
1: Yeah, my production assistant was curious about uh, your switch from the more literary uh, pieces to the thrillers. I think you've kind of addressed that. Do you enjoy writing these uh, suspense thrillers more than the other, or what?
0: Um, I'd like to tell you the truth, and the truth is that all writing um, is just hard work. Um, and I don't think there's any difference between doing this and writing a book of uh, mine like The Good Son. It's all hard work.
1: Yeah, well, uh, I know that for sure. <laughs> having, having done it myself, uh, it's, it's not something that uh, you should take on uh, lightly. Uh, a little bit about you as a writer for our listeners. Uh, you you have the award in literature from the Aca- uh, American Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters. You had a Guggenheim Fellowship, uh, The Good Son, your book one. uh came out to great acclaim, uh, 14 novels and one memoir. You've appeared in Esquire, Paris Review, New York uh, Times Magazine, Men's Journal. But that's not all there is to Craig Nova. Your love of writing is challenged by your love of fly fishing. Is that a symbiotic relationship for you?
0: Absolutely. You know, um, uh, I've written a little memoir about it. And um, I think I've mentioned uh, in the beginning that um, when I was having trouble uh, writing a book, I'd go fishing, and often I would have a solution to um, a literary problem. Um, and at one time, I was not having not only literary problems, but financial problems. And that um, after my first daughter was born, and my wife gave up her job at CBS News, we moved to the country. And, um, you know, I had to figure out what I was going to do. And my wife said, well, why don't you go fishing? And I did. And um, I came back um, more informed about what I was going to do.
1: Yeah, I believe she gave you your first fishing rod, right? Yes, she did. Yeah, and we're listeners. We're going to be uh, actually uh, on our Patreon channel. Um, we're going to be talking about his memoir Brook Trout and the Writing Life. I've always wanted to dive deeper uh, into the relationship between fly fishing and writing. Being a fly fisherman and a writer myself, and Craig wrote the book that has the perfect title, Brook Trout and the Writing Life. We're going to do that at Patreon. That's patreo com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. It's where we help authors uh, give voice to the written words, and you can be a contributor and get over 100 exclusive episodes there. We're going to do that after this episode, so check that out. Um, but back to, uh, back to the book at hand here, Double Solitaire. Craig, um, I've got the book in front of me, and uh, uh, I know that... Uh, I can. We're going to talk about the the book cover in a second, but the title "Double Solitaire" does it have anything to do with the game itself?
0: Well, it's odd. I think that the um, what I mean by the by the title is somebody who's doubly alone, and I I think that um, many characters in this book are doubly alone. Uh, the the truth is, it was a game I used to play with my mother, um, and um, I've been trying to work um, this book onto a, a a novel as a title for. Well, probably forty years, but um um I think this is a book where it really did fit.
1: Yeah, I've never played Double Solitaire. I actually looked it up before before I called in to talk to you about this, uh, because I was curious about the connection between the game and the and some of the characters in the book that I read. Um yep. and I I, su- I assume that being you're you're alone twice as much, right? That's right.
0: And in fact, and, in one version of, the, of a book, um, uh, Farrell teaches the uh, kids who he goes to visit the kids who are having um, are, are terminally ill uh, how to play double solitaire. Because if any if anybody's doubly alone, it's a teenage kid who's dying.
1: Yeah, and by, by the way, I really enjoyed the book. It took me to you know part of the country I've kind of passed through, but not visited. We're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, on the writing life segment at, uh, at Patreon, but. But uh, the setting itself, uh, you know, nighttime, uh, maybe a long exposure on the lens. You're looking at uh, Los Angeles as it kind of breaks out there over uh, the landscape. Uh, This is an area that you're somewhat familiar with, right?
0: Well, yes, I grew up there. I went to Hollywood High. And um, the picture that's on the cover of the book is actually the view from my parents' backyard. Um, Yeah, sure. I grew up in... um, In Hollywood, and when I was growing up, Hollywood was a kind of um, mill town, Um, you know, a company town. Almost everybody um, worked uh, for the uh, studios, and if they didn't work for the studios, they worked in aerospace. But I went to school with the uh, sons and daughters of everybody from screenwriters to film directors to carpenters to, you know, um, costume designers, electricians, you name it, Uh, animal trainers, the whole whole ball of wax
1: Mm, yeah I, i read somewhere that you raced against steve mcqueen is that true
0: um i wouldn't say race um, you know, I had a 1956 Chevrolet and, um, he was in his AC Cobra and, uh, I would see him on, um, on Mulholland drive and I'd follow him for a while and he'd pick it up a little bit and I tried to stay with him and he was, um, smart enough to make sure that I didn't have a chance to try to really stay up with him because I would kill myself. So he just waved at me and took off. boom, you know, and that was it. Uh-huh.
1: That's interesting. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit uh, about uh, the, the main character in the book here, uh, Quinn Farrell. He is a fixer in Los Angeles. He cleans up the messes of rich people in power, so they don't uh, come to light. Uh, he's uh, he's sort of building this, uh, I think, moral. We talked about it, House of Cards, so he can live with himself and and also do the job that he does. I'm I'm curious how the idea of Quinn Farrell came to you and how he's different from characters uh, you've shown us in other books.
0: Well, you know, um, uh, growing up in Hollywood, um I, um, I have to tell you that, you know, um, there are a lot of messes there. And in, in fact, um, you know, in my parents' neighborhood, there was, um, a guy who worked for Warner brothers, um, putatively doing, um, public relations, but was actually, you know, taking care of, um, messes, um, this um, this occupation is one that um, almost everybody who grows up in Hollywood and has a um, a pulse knows is going on. So you know, for a long time, I've been uh, aware of that, and uh, this was an o- an opportunity to actually put it into um, uh, the three dimensions of a of a character in a book.
1: Yeah, and he's uh, he's a bit of a complex character, and I suppose that's uh, that's a good thing whenever you're writing a character that they're not one-dimensional, but um, he, he does have a bit of an arc here. But he starts off in kind of a dark place in the beginning of this book, doesn't he? Yes,
0: absolutely. I think the thing the, that um, that changes him is that he falls in love for the first time. And um, I think that when that happens, um, you want the person who you care about to think the best of you. And I think that that's the, the moment where he begins to to face up to the things he's been doing, which, let's face it, are are pretty ugly.
1: Yeah. And we have uh, an antagonist early on um, with uh, Terry Peregrine. He's a Hollywood actor with a penchant for drugging and raping underage girls. And this is part of the inciting incident. Uh, Quinn Farrell is called to deal with an issue that uh, is at uh, Peregrine's house. Um, But I guess uh, I want to ask this before we get to that inciting incident. Uh, could there be a larger antagonist here, maybe uh, than than just uh, some of the characters in the book? Perhaps the uh, the setting itself uh, might be an antagonist.
0: Well, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that I I meant to invoke Los Angeles as a character in the book, um, and um, it is uh, uh, the 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 mood of the place, the the things that go on there, the uh, moral corruption, the um, miasma of uh, you know, ambition and, um, uh, as I say, corruption is, um, is, is palpable. In fact, um, it's one of the things I dislike about going back to Los Angeles. I, I feel that, and um, yeah, sure, the, the setting is, uh, I meant as a, a character who is um, an antagonist too, um, certainly in the, the overall uh, summation of, of its, its moral um, paucity, I guess is the word I'm looking for.
1: Yeah. And I was uh, I was intrigued. You take us uh, along sort of a freeway and, and, and there's a body that's found. I can see it. It's just sort of a steep incline, a lot of brush, uh, probably hot, sandy uh, kind of a area that just things get thrown out of cars. And yet here one of the characters is searching along the side of the road for, for a that's body. That's right. So the inciting incident itself Farrell is brought to Hollywood actor Terry Bergen's home to fix the problem. There's an underage girl who's there when he arrives. Um, this is going to be, uh, we're going to have you do a little reading here as we do on Charlotte's podcast, beginning with uh, a good place to start, uh, the opening of the book. Anytime you're ready, uh, Craig, just uh, take it away.
0: All right. This is from the um, the beginning of the book. Farrell knew after being in Terry Peregrine's house for 20 minutes that Terry was thinking of killing about the girl from Alaska. Terry's anxious gestures, his handsome face, pale with worry and lack of sleep, his jumpy primping in front of a mirror, his obvious panic all revealed his lack of control. The girl was 16, maybe younger, but she didn't look it. Her hair wasn't blonde so much as silver, not white and her eyes seemed purple, but Farrell, who had been sent to take care of this, thought, no, no, no one really has purple eyes, but there she was. Peregrine's house was just off Mulholland on the north side of the hill that separated Los Angeles from the valley. The house was a comfortable, stucco-covered place in the Spanish style, with those half pipe tiles on the roof and doors with wrought iron hinges. Three stories, a large backyard with eucalyptus trees growing at the back of a three-acre lot, trimmed to ensure privacy, but not enough to hide the view of the valley. A swimming pool in the backyard gave off a scent of chlorine, like an enormous aquamarine flower. It was always shocking what the pool men knew, considering what they discovered on the bottom when the uh, robot vacuum cleaner collected discarded items, condoms, bathing suit bottoms, needles, rubber tubes, and the like. As an actor, Terry Peregrine was close to being completely virtual. He was good-looking in a mildly unpleasant way, and while he had gotten a lot of attention, even to the extent to being what is known as a star, the falseness of how he came into being couldn't be avoided. He had been manufactured in the usual way, promoted, protected, and sold like a new deodorant. It happens all the time. Still, he had been cast in a high-budget picture that was filming now. He was a hymn to falseness. It was a September evening, and as Farrell had waited before knocking on a peregrine's door, the lights in the valley reminded him of being a kid at the movies when he had eaten some candy called jujubes, those chewy globes like gummy bars, only smaller and brightly colored, red, yellow, green, purple. The valley looked like it had been covered with them from one end to the other, bright, mystical, and random, red, green, and yellow. And while the lights were packed together, they had a presence that only came out at night to reassure you, to make you think that things were really beautiful after all, and benign. In the afternoon, the valley had an ominous clutter. Pharaoh had knocked on the heavy wood of a door, the sound distant and throbbing, like the last beating of a heart. Peregrine had opened the door with that look of someone concerned, his eyes moving from side to side, as though to see if anyone else was in his yard. The only other object was Farrell's gray Camry, which was as anonymous a car as he was able to find. "'Bromberg sent you?' said Terry. "'Just tell me about it,' said Farrell. "'Can I come in?' "'If Bromberg sent you, everything's going to be fine, right?' said Terry. "'How old is she?' said Farrell. "'She looks pretty old,' he said." Uh huh, said Farrell. That's not what I asked. Come on in, pal. We'll get this straight. Pal, thought Farrell, you poor son of a bitch. You've got to, uh, uh, understand, uh, Farrell said. Farrell's stutter came first with a sense of an interior jumpiness, an awareness of a presence not quite a personality, but still having a will of its own that insisted on revealing items that Farrell wanted to keep hidden anger, embarrassment fury frustration and something else an exasperation he couldn't ever name but which existed as a constant companion in an unnamed yearning love loneliness mystification terry waited for a moment unsure about the stutter it doesn't happen very often Farrell said all right said terry she's inside let's take a look Farrell said if Farrell swallowed he could stop the stutter but he had to do it at a precise moment this morning, Farrell had worked on it, and he had said in his kitchen, beggar, hacksaw, shadow, vanish. So things are b- 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 better, said Terry. He smiled now that you're here. How old, Farrell said. I told you what she looks like, said Terry. The living room was cold. With air conditioning blasting, white sofas curved around a glass table, it was impossible to say how many lines of chopped drug had been laid out there and then vacuumed through straws or rolled up bills slightly moist from being passed from person to person as they sat there at night. They sniffed and looked at that red, yellow, and green glitter in the valley. The curtains were pulled back. In the distance, the San Gabriel Mountains were invisible aside from the street lamps, which appeared like Christmas lights thrown over a black whale. More and more, the houses in the mountains there were burning to the ground, and since they were built in places where the eucalyptus trees were, still grew. Even though the people who owned the houses tried to keep the brush back, when a fire started, it was time to get the hell out of the way peregrine's hands were shaking, but it was hard to tell if this was from a hard come down or the realization of what he was up against. He was short, as many actors are, since they are easier to photograph when they aren't very tall. Brownish hair, blue eyes, a nice smile, and he spent enough time in the gym to look fit. The girl from Alaska sat on the sofa, dressed in her blue jeans, a tight-fitting sweater, some Adidas running shoes. Farrell guessed she was a little scared, but not as much as she should have been. She turned toward him, the light in the room making that silver blonde hair seem all the more metallic. Her skin was as white as the keys of a piano. Everything about her, the way she sat with that precise posture, her steady gaze, her beautiful skin, her breathy voice even the per- perfume she wore which while cheap was changed by her presence suggested a frank innocence perfectly blended with some ache some desire she didn't have a clue thought Farrell not a clue
1: thanks for that Craig that was uh, that was great not not a clue she didn't have a clue <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't know what was coming and, and for that matter I don't think Farrell knew what was coming I think at that, at that I point think
0: he's I think he's suspicious of the possibilities here
1: yeah yeah he's very suspicious, but uh, as he works through it uh, in the book, he's uh, he faces a number of uh, obstacles, which is good for any any novel for the protagonist to have obstacles. Um, I, I want to talk about uh, we've talked about the setting. We've talked about the main character, the antagonist. You've done a inciting reading essay here. Let's talk about uh, themes for just a second. Craig,, uh, you've got a number of different themes in the book. you know you you're dealing with money and power, you know l a you underage sex with celebrities. Uh, there's a little romance in the book as well. Um, and this sort of moral ambiguity thing we talked about. When you're writing a novel like this, Craig, when you start out, are you thinking about those themes, or do they percolate up as you're writing?
0: That's a good question. Um, I I th- really think the way it works, and I say this after 15 novels altogether, that when you're writing a, an early draft of a book, you're looking – you're looking for what I call um, off-page communication. That is, you want to kind of set things up so that the reader knows what's going on and you know what's going on, but yet it's never mentioned. And the thing that is uh, never mentioned or the things that are never mentioned have to do with all these um, concerns that you just mentioned. So how do you how do you set it up so that um, uh, there's a kind of dramatic moment where uh, the reader says, "Yes, this is really about power or yes, this is really about romance um, so you you you're aware that there are these things that you would like to get into the book or things that you like seeing in books that you read and so it was a kind of um, kind of like quantum physics you know you, you things so everything is moving um, it's hard to say where things precisely are, but you know they're there and so you're working toward them and you want to quantify them in a way as I say that the reader knows and you know that a lot of word is said.
1: Yeah, said yes that's, that's uh, interesting I've heard different authors talk about this and how maybe the fleshing out of the theme happens in second, third, and fourth uh, you know rewrites but that the first draft is about sort of getting you know the characters in place and the storyline going
0: I think that you know really um, I write ten to one that is, for every page that um, is printed, I write 10 more. Um, so for a book of, um, um, you know, um, let's say uh, 500 pages, I'll write 5,000 pages. Um, uh, and it's in that continually, well, maybe what really goes on when you, when you do a lot of revision, you know, I I'm, I'm, often say there's no such thing as um, good writing, only good rewriting, which is um, – uh you know a, a quote from robert graves who um it was very influential on on me in, in this um this regard um but you know uh it's the what really is happening is you're finding a way in which you're comfortable you know where you can be playful um and that um, uh, comes about as the book becomes progressively more more finished, where you don't have to worry about um, a lot of um, basic um, bookkeeping. Um, so we should get comfortable enough to be playful. I think that's what you're really trying to do.
1: Well, that's, uh, that's great for any of our listeners who are also writers to hear that uh, the rewriting process, uh, a 10 to 1, that's a That does give definition to what you said earlier about writing being hard work, correct?
0: Um, You know, also, um, in a a way, um, it's reassuring. Um, You sit down and you say, well, you know, um, I'm not quite sure where I'm going to end up today, but um, I'm going to do five pages. Um, I have five pages where I'm, I'm aware of it. something. Something is hidden in there. I want to come out, or something I want to I want to fix or or explore. But I'm going to do five pages. That's it. And um, that's very reassuring. You don't feel that you're you're com- confronting 120,000 words, but say 1,500.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, well, you also you mentioned playfulness a little bit there. Uh, you also give us some breathing room in this book at times when we're dealing with all these, uh, Tense moments with a little humor. You bring that into the story. I, there was a raccoon in a vending machine. Yeah, you that's right. Know. That was
0: really intended, you know, for you know comic relief. And and that actually, by the way, uh, that is a, a scene that I I wrote and had fun with. You can tell. I mean, you know, you can feel that. You know, um, I'm just pitching this thing up in the air. Uh, I'm laughing at it. I expect the reader to laugh at it. Um, and you know, all all good books or many good books have these kind of comic. Um, elements in it, um, sometimes bleakly comic, um, as in Graham Greene. But in any case, it's it's there. And I I, I wanted, definitely wanted um, there to be um, more than than one tone here. In fact, it's something um, uh, I learned from John Irving, who's an an old old friend. And what uh, I noticed in John's books, like say Garp or something like that, he would set up four or five tones, you know, tragic, serious, uh funny. And then play them like a xylophone and go from one to the other. Um and then of course that's what I'm trying to do here.
1: Yeah, and for for the listeners, uh Farrell, the protagonist, has a little side hustle uh where he bought a vending machine business and the the mob is coming around to collect their protection money. And it so happens that one day there's a raccoon in the vending machine that they have to deal with, and it's uh if you if you ever want to know listeners how to get a raccoon out of a vending machine, we will just you know read read uh, Craig's book. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> tell, 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 tell you how to do it right. There's an easy way. Well, th- this is a good segue, Craig, to our write, uh, writing life a little bit. We're going to talk about this before we jump over to Patreon. Um, it, just so people know a little bit about you, uh, you, you came out strong, uh, super, you know, um, with a with your first book and and what davis bowman said of com, you're a novelist who's yet to write a supermarket bestseller but you've written at least two american classics that will likely resonate after your death the way the poor selling great gatsby did for poor old f scott Fitzgerald. now that that's that's high praise craig and uh and now you're moving into these other uh areas here based a lot i think on your life experiences which are are pretty rich and and i'm just wondering um did you do you think you would have become a successful writer as you've become, had you not had some hardship and had and not had all these different life experiences? That you oh, had? I don't
0: think you. You know, um, I don't think you can. Well, I'm not so sure. As there's a, a rock rib fact here, but it seems to me that that um, um, many writers um, have experiences, and in my case, you know, um, I've had a lot of. Um, you know, non-office-like jobs, and um, I worked on a farm, a truck driver, um, you know, computer time salesman, um, uh, and all those things were were um, um, keenly important. You know, I think that, it, that for um, many writers, or I would like to think um, um, most writers want to know or need to know precisely – uh, how the world really works, whether that's, you know, the um, the way um, uh, studios um, are put together, the way um, insurance companies are put together, the way trucking companies are put together, what it's like to work on a farm. Um, all those things are, are important. I think that the, the, the way it works is that, you know... Um, it's a kind of um non-specific but still um palpable background of uh, understanding of the way the world works that you can pull on or draw on when you're actually writing something.
1: Yeah, that's a great answer. And and uh so I asked this question to authors who've been at it for a while, published a number of books. If you could tell your younger writing self, uh Craig, something uh helpful that uh the writer that you are now knows after what you've experienced. Uh, can you bullet down anything that might have helped that younger writer?
0: Well, uh, for myself, um, I wish I hadn't been so afraid. Um, I think in the beginning you're scared to death um, of of not getting published, of all kinds of things, and I, I would have enjoyed it more if I hadn't been so frightened by the um, by the unknowns. I think if you're really um, serious about it. If you have a a knack for it or a talent, it'll work out.
1: Yeah, that's great. Hey, um, just as sort of a homage to something we did earlier, uh, a long time ago when I was uh, in early season, so we did this little thing where a little speed round where I asked the author uh, some questions that kind of give us an insight into the writing life. Now, I'm going to ask you like 10 questions you can do. You can pick one or the other or neither or both. All right, (laughs) here we go. Here we go. Ink pen or keyboard?
0: Oh, keyboard. Although um, I have a um, a notebook, which is uh, you, I write in by hand. And uh, when I'm in the middle of a, a book, I, I keep a, a pocket notebook with me. Uh, in fact, my, my daughters still give me grief because I when we were living in Vermont and I had them in the car, uh, we'd be on 91, which is a, a four-lane highway. And I'd pull over and whip the uh, notebook out of my pocket and start writing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I've heard a number of authors say, well, last, where, where's your, where's your notebook? I, you're not, you're not writing in your notebook. Get your notebook out." I know. So it's, it's a good thing to have because your memory is short. Sometimes you'll have an idea riding down the interstate and you'll forget it. Well, by that's time actually get home, right? a, you know,
0: a great problem. I was on a bus in New York City uh, when I was a student at Columbia, and um, I had an idea for a book. I thought was just absolutely fantastic. I said, "My God, my fortune is made." When I got home, I couldn't remember it. I was, you know. <laughs> really undone by that.
1: That's great. Uh, all right. Second question: Dictionary or spell check?
0: I have a Webster's Third. I'm kind of fond of, and I think that the the um, the truth is that if you are looking at a, you know looking at a, a, a dictionary or looking up words in a dictionary, you can kind of noodle around the word that you just found, um, and I think that's an interesting thing to do.
1: Mm, there you go outline or free flow it's, um, a very
0: rough outline I think this is a critical thing in writing a, a, a novel in that you don't you don't want to outline too much because if you do then um, it will be flat and uh, lack um, won't be lively so you want just enough of a notion uh, of where you're going but not so much that inspiration is forbidden
1: yeah good advice all right writing in the light of day or the dark oh night? you
0: know uh, when when um, uh, I was living in, in uh, Vermont, and my wife and kids would drive up to the house, and they could see my office, which was at the end of his you know, farmhouse. Um, and then she could see the light on it was, if it was after dark. And so she came up with a rule saying, no writing after dark.
1: <laughs> okay. No writing after dark. All right. Complete quiet or music or other sounds while you quiet. write. Okay. Writing the first draft or revise. Yeah, I think it, I know where you're going with this, but—
0: um, yeah. I do a lot of revising.
1: Writing the work or submitting it for publication?
0: Oh, that's complicated. I mean, I, you know it depends on who you're working with. Um, um one of the the great difficulties that I've faced is the um, the chaos of uh, of American publishing over the last twenty years about well, twenty five years uh, in which um, many um, um, publishers were consolidated and that meant that um uh, editors were fired and uh, you know I would have a working relationship with um an editor um and then I, I have what I call the the silent telegraph. That is, if it's a certain kind of silence coming from New York, you know there's trouble. And one day the phone rings and the editor you were working with is gone. And there's a, a new editor who's taken his or her place. Um, and for one book um, at uh, Houghton Mifflin, I went through five different editors for the same book. So, you know... Um, mm-hmm. If if an editor is really uh, stable um, and it, it is secure on their job, well, then you're you're um, likely to to uh, approach them with an idea for a book and take an advance. Um, that's a mugs game, however, if the editor is going to leave, because then you have an orphan book on your hands, and and um, uh, that's a very very tough thing.
1: All right, final of the ten, final of the ten questions marketing or manual labor
0: uh, manual labor <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly <laughs> exactly uh and just a quick follow-up uh craig how has your writing process changed over time so it's absolutely
0: the same non-stop it's a really? um a uh, method i kind of learned in my first books and it's it, um i guess i take a certain amount of security and thinking i, I for me i i've learn how to write a book and I know what that is. And, um, um, so I've been sticking with it. That's my story and I'm sticking with it.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. And if it ain't, if that's it ain't right. broke, don't fix it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's great. Um, this is this helpful, uh, tips and also learn a little bit about you as a writer. Um, let me just remind our listeners that we're going to jump over here now to Patreon. We're going to talk Brook Trout and the writing life. Uh, it's a memoir. We're going to talk about, uh, The relationship between fly fishing and writing, and uh, a little bit about Craig's journey uh, in that regard. Uh, That's at patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. Join us there. Craig, I want to congratulate you on the new book and uh, thank you uh, for being a part of Charlotte Readers Podcast. it's my pleasure entirely. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on.